0: Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What really happened to Betty and Barney Hill on a dark road in New Hampshire in September 1961? What have we learned about UFOs and abductions since then? Are UFO revelations really coming from the government?
1: Hello and welcome to the 904th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WOONAM and FM radio in Winsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com I'm Ben and those lofty questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures and Dad, Paul
0: Kathleen Marden is a major figure in the global UFO community She is the Mutual UFO Network's Director of Experience and Research and heads the Experiencer Research Team. She is also the leading authority on the Betty and Barney Hill case of 1961, the first alien abduction affair to gain global media attention. Kathy also happens to be Betty and Barney's niece. We're very proud to have Kathy as an occasional guest co-host of our show, and we welcome her as our guest today. Kathy is well-known in the media and is the author of a number of books, including Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill Experience, co-authored with the late Stanton Friedman, and just updated for the 60th anniversary of that event. Mm. Her website, kathleen
1: com. So, Kathleen Marden, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal.
2: Thank you. It's great to be back with you.
1: Oh, it's always great to have you. It's, it, it feels like it's been a while, but it probably hasn't been a while. I don't know. I'm, well, Kathy's sure co-host a couple. times. That's time, true. Yeah. So, but it's it's always a delight to have you. So I guess you know we'll we'll jump right into the meat and potatoes of it as we always do. Let's begin with the story of uh, Betty and Barney Hill and their experience and your personal memories of that time.
2: Well, I was uh, 13 years old when this occurred, and uh, my memory of it is that I arrived home from school in the afternoon. And my mother was on the telephone with my Aunt Betty. And from what I could hear, uh, they were having a conversation and were very concerned about uh, the possibility that they might be contaminated with uh, cosmic rays because this craft had come so close to them. And so my mother... Uh, told Betty that she would speak to our neighbor, uh, a, a physicist, when he arrived home from work. And this is what we were waiting for. Uh, while we were waiting, my father's best friend came in uh, to the house. He stopped by every afternoon for coffee on his way home. And so he... Uh, was told about this by my mother. Now, he had been the chief of police in the small town of Newton, New Hampshire. It was right next to Kingston, where I grew up, in southeastern New Hampshire. And he said that uh, Pease Air Force Base had contacted the police department and asked people who observed UFOs to make a report to Pease. So my mother then called Betty again uh, and she and uh, instructed Betty that she and Barney should make a report to Keyes Air Force Base. And uh, also uh, that uh, my mother was going to talk to this physicist and uh, the physicist ended up telling my mother that if Betty had... A compass she should take out to her company. Sorry about that. (laughs) Shall I go on? Yes, Yes,
1: please. please.
2: (laughs) Okay, so um, those were the instructions to Betty. Within a couple of days, uh, my mother, father, two brothers, and I uh, drove down to Betty's and Barney's house. And this is when I saw the watches that would no longer run. Uh, the spots on the trunk of the car that caused the needle to on the compass to whirl, indicating a magnetic field. didn't know that at the time. Uh, apparently Betty didn't know that either. She thought that it had something to do with radiation. Um, and uh, we heard from Betty uh, what she recalled from this close encounter event. Uh, normally, we had a lot of fun with Barney. but on this particular day we were advised not to bother Barney. My father sat quietly with him uh, in the corner of the living room. and my mother, my aunt and my brothers and I walked into the kitchen and we were uh, simply talking with to Betty about what had happened to her. And then we wanted to go outside and see the spots on the trunks, which we did. Well, my father told me later, uh, years later during my investigation, that he sat with Barney and that Barney was very clear about these non-humans that he saw on the craft as he was looking through binoculars up at the craft. And so I... Uh, felt that it was very important that, uh, this be included in, the, in, uh, the, the contents of what actually did happen. Because many people are led to believe that Betty and Barney saw a light in the sky, that Betty was some kind of a UFO, nut, which she was not. She had never read a book on the topic. And that, uh, you know, these, they have speculated that, uh, Betty had a series of five dreams and became convinced that uh, she had been captured by a UFO and that it was all fantasy, but that's not uh, what the evidence points to. I have all of the records, all of the files, and on uh, the day that they reported this craft to Pease Air Force Base, uh, it talks about the erratic movement of the craft. It talks about uh, how eventually it swooped down over their car. And at one point it was the size of a nickel at arm's length, but when it swooped down over the car, it was the size of a dinner plate at arm's length. And uh, keep in mind that the full moon is the size of an aspirin. At arm's length. So this was huge. Hmm. And, uh, that is when Barney had to stop the car. And, uh, he got out of the car with the binoculars. He was, uh, highly skeptical about what this was. He was attempting to identify it as, uh, you know, a common aircraft, but it sat there in the air, silent and just hovering. And it was very, he- it was huge. It was only 200 feet above him. And then when he stepped back, it uh, moved to the adjacent field. And Barney walked toward the field, still attempting to identify it. And he was, you know, I'm not speaking now about what I remember from that particular day. I'm t- talking about my research and my investigation. Uh, Barney went into this field, the edge of the field, and looked up at this craft that was now about 100 feet in the air. And this is when he saw figures dressed in black, shiny uniforms that in uh, the report to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, Betty mentioned. She's the one who was the typist in the family. And that, uh, these figures dressed in shiny black uniforms had frightened Barney terribly. Well, that report was, uh, sent to Walter Webb, who was an astronomer at the Hayden Planetarium in Boston. He had worked with Alan Hynek on the satellite program and as a volunteer. And, uh, Walter Webb is the individual who interviewed Betty and Barney separately and then together for a period of about six hours uh, in early October of 1961. And in his report, it goes into much greater detail that uh, this craft swooped down and uh, that Barney saw entities, or he called them figures, dressed in black shiny uniforms that were somehow not human. That's a quote, somehow not human, uh, but of a superior type who uh, were far more technologically advanced than us. And I can imagine what a shock this was to Barney, because first he didn't even believe that anyone who uh, reported seeing such a thing uh, was interpreting the information accurately. and He was pulling the binoculars down from his eyes when he was standing in the field and shaking his head, putting the binoculars back up to his eyes, um, uh, pinching himself. Am I dreaming? No, he's not dreaming. He's standing there. He's actually having uh, this uh, experience, looking up at this craft that Uh, really frightened him when something started to drop down out of the bottom of it. And when that occurred, he was afraid that he would be captured like, quote, a bug in a net. That's what he told Walter Webb. And he pulled the binoculars from his eyes so forcefully that he broke the leather strap and ran back to the car screaming to Betty that they had to get out of there or they were going to be uh, captured. When he was uh, entering the car, he looked up and he noticed that the craft was now moving in his direction. And um, he told Betty to roll down the window, to look up, see if she could see it. She was expecting to see lights. All she saw was blackness. Within moments, uh, she and Barney heard a series of code-like buzzing sounds striking the trunk of their car. This is all part of that conscious continuous recall. It's all in the early reports. It's even in the Air Force Blue Book report. These, these code-like buzzing sounds. Uh, what they said, uh, to Walter Webb and to me when, when I spoke to them is that the code-like, when they heard this, these buzzing sounds, the car began to vibrate And they felt a tingling sensation passing through their bodies. And the next thing they knew, they were 35 miles down the highway. Um, They had some vague memories. Betty always remembered more than Barney. She remembered a fiery orb sitting on the ground. She remembered encountering a roadblock somewhere. Uh, they didn't know where or when that occurred. They then heard a, s- a series of buzzing sounds again. This time they didn't see a craft. Uh, Betty said to Barney, Now do you believe in flying saucers? And Barney said, Oh, don't be ridiculous, Betty. I can prove that I can make that sound. And he stopped the car. He drove it from one side of the road to the other. He stopped it. He started quickly. He could not reproduce that sound so uh many, many questions there was physical evidence as well uh, you know the, the besides the spots on the trunk, I've mentioned uh, the watches that would no longer run. The tops of Barney's best dress shoes were so deeply scraped that he had to buy new shoes betty's t- dress was torn in several places. she ended up uh Placing it in her closet, knowing that it had to be repaired, she just sort of forgot about it. And later, when she took it out, it's covered with a pink powdery substance. Now, all of all of this has undergone scientific analysis and investigation. Uh, in my new book, uh, the 60th anniversary edition of *Captured: The Betty and Barney Hill UFO Experience*, I have updated I am, uh, it.
0: Holding it up now for those who are watching on the video feed. Sorry, go go ahead.
2: Okay, thank you. Uh, I have updated it with uh, new information uh, on the scientific analysis of the evidence that has happened since the first book was published. And uh, some of the things that you'll read about are um, scientific uh, study of the uh, symbols that, uh, people observe on these craft and how s- Betty's symbols compared to that. So, uh, the, this was a study that was done by Dr. Don C. Donderry from McGill University and Stuart Appel from the State University of New York. Um, I have talked about, uh, evidence of witnesses. I've talked about, uh, new, uh, Analysis of Marjorie Fish's work on Betty Hill's star map, and uh, what astronomers think about it now, um, and and much much more. But there's quite a lot of new information in that chapter, including DNA analysis on the dress, and also uh, chemical analysis and some rare materials that were found on that dress recently. Do you still have these artifacts? I have given those artifacts to the University of New Hampshire. They're in an archival collection. Um, Betty and I talked about retaining Barney's shoes. She said, oh, they've just been sitting around here for years, and she decided to send them to the dump because... Uh, He had worn them for yard work after that. He didn't preserve them because of the the scrapes on the toes of the shoes.
0: Hmm, That's a shame. Can you tell us about the the star map, which has had some controversy surrounding it?
2: It has. uh, I can tell you that... um, Marjorie Fish, a brilliant woman from Ohio, who was at that time a school teacher, but then uh, after she did this work, worked as uh, a um, research assistant at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Uh, she worked for six years on this star map, attempting to locate the stars in our local galactic neighborhood out 55 light years in all directions from the sun. She she had to go to the university. Remember, this is before we had home computers. This is uh, even before we had photocopying machines. So she had to go uh, to the university, to the library, and sit down, go to the astronomical catalogs, and write all of the distance data, all of the characteristics of these stars out 54 light years from the sun, she was primarily interested in the stars with exoplanets, with stars that might have uh, life that might develop, sun-like planets uh, and sun-like stars. So uh, she w- was diligent and persevered in the work that she did. And finally, we moved along in our technological development. And... At the end of 1971, uh, there was a new catalog released with new distance data and new some new star characteristics. She went back. She had already built 14 models at that point. She went back and she uh, looked at these models, and lo and behold, she found a match. And the match hadn't been there before because... They, they didn't have accurate distance data. So there were three stars in that uh, star map that had not been there when she was attempting to find a match. And what the astronomers uh, who studied this uh, stated, and I'm talking about the ones that Stanton Friedman found who were willing to vet Marjorie's work, they stated that... Uh, All of the stars on Betty's map connected by these solid lines were star-like, or sun-like, I should say, Um, although only 5% of the stars in our local galactic neighborhood are are sun-like. And all of the sun-like stars in that volume of space were on Betty's map, which was quite extraordinary. Also... The, uh, one of the astronomers who looked at that, uh, noticed that all of these stars were in a plane. Uh, Stanton used to say like pepperoni on, on pizza as opposed mm. to raisins spread out in a loaf of raisin bread. What it meant in being in a plane is that it made sense to travel from nearest star to nearest star. And this astronomer stated that, um, If we lived on zeta reticuli, which were the two stars, large stars in the foreground, you'll see them in the book, Uh, if we lived there and we were going to explore space, that is where we would go. So our sun was on the map, um, there were some other planets that are nearby, and so it made sense to many of the astronomers uh, there were uh, skeptics who uh, were vociferous in trying to debunk this, stating that you could throw marbles into the air and uh, they could land and you would be able to find a star pattern. Well, the point of this study is that these stars had very special characteristics. And I've already spoken about those. So... uh that sets this apart and this is what caused there to be a lot of scientific information uh, and interest in this star map
0: well i can't wait to read the uh, <clears throat> this version of the book i'm currently engrossed in your latest book extraterrestrial contact and when, once I've, uh, I've devoured that i'm going to be getting into this one but it's it's wonderful the um The entire notion of um, other witnesses has been, I think at least in what I've read, not been fully treated uh, in as I say, what I've read about this case, and there there seem to be people who um, had uh, sightings of what could have been the same craft, uh, particularly over in Vermont. Uh, could you say a little bit about that other, possible other witnesses?
2: Well, what I discovered is that uh, from Stanton Friedman, actually, he had written to John Luttrell, who was the newspaper reporter who uh, received information about Betty's and Barney's experience uh, and the hypnosis as the result of a violation of confidentiality. And he had begun his own investigation. He spoke to Air Force officers And he went to upstate New Hampshire searching for witnesses. Now, we didn't know this. I didn't even know this until fairly recently. And uh, Stanton had written to him. He told Stanton that there were, uh, as he recalled, 12 to 14 witnesses uh, who observed a craft by the same description at the same time that they were all in different locations and that he realized that they were all observing the same craft because he drew lines to where they observed the craft. And it intersected the lines where Betty and Barney were observing that craft. Now Stanton didn't release that information, and I didn't release it when we wrote the first book because John Luttrell had explained to Stanton that he was no longer uh, a a journalist for the newspaper, that he had taken a job with a conservative hospital, and that uh, he did not want to be brought back into this at all. I was pretty upset with him for quite a long time Mm -hmm. over what he did to my aunt and uncle, and the emotional... Uh, impact of his work on them and on the remainder of the family. How distressed Betty and Barney were when they came to my grandparents' house. I grew up across the street from my grandparents. We had a family meeting about what to do about this. This changed everything. And I want you to, I want to talk about what happened to Betty and Barney in 1965. In January of 1965, they were invited to Lyndon Johnson's inauguration because they were uh, working on the political campaign. Also in 1965, Barney was uh, given an award by Sergeant Shriver from our U.S. government's uh, poverty program because Barney and Betty and others... Uh, in Rockingham County, New Hampshire had used funding from the Office of Economic Opportunity to set up uh, the Rockingham County Community Action Program and Barney served as the chairman of the first board of directors for that program. He had also received an award from the Archdiocese of Manchester, New Hampshire for setting up a literacy program. Uh, Remember that people had to uh, pass a reading test in order to vote. You had to, had to take a literacy test. And also, he was appointed to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. So these, uh, he was a man of prominent standing in New Hampshire. He was traveling around the state, uh, talking uh, about these different uh, political things that uh helping people in the the state of New Hampshire, especially those who were disadvantaged or being discriminated against. He was active in the NAACP, as was Betty. Barney was on the regional board.
0: Okay, very good. We're going to take our bottom-of-the-hour break here, and uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM. 99.5 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley with our wonderful guest today, Kathleen Martin, and we'll be right back, so stay with us.
2: The night is
1: alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade. The finest in late night talk, listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want
2: to take a ride? Local
0: and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM. Uh, we have our very familiar uh, good friend and, and, and guest, Kathleen Marden, uh, author, researcher, uh, UFO great. And uh, we're talking about uh, what happened to her aunt and uncle, Betty and Barney Hill, in 1961. Probably the most famous uh, and certainly the first uh, documented uh, abduction case, uh, UFO situation going on. Uh, that was uh, nearby uh, where we are now in New Hampshire. And uh, we've been talking about... Uh, the case and some of the uh, the, the lesser known aspects of it. However, at this point let's, just to make sure we get to a question from, two questions from a listener here, none other than Peter from Peter Shelley everybody knows him, he's been on the show now Hmm. uh, from Bogota, Colombia and uh, sends in some great questions and Ben, if you would take take those uh, uh.
1: Indeed, your anonymity is gone, Peter. Uh, So Peter writes to us, uh, please ask Kathleen um, (coughs) excuse me I am now working on uh, one of the, the biggest cases, maybe the most important case I've worked on in 30 years uh, uh, that I've been doing this. Will uh, You will hear more about this in the future. Um, excuse me. Let me, re- let me restate that. Kathleen uh, has a quote that I am now working on one of the biggest cases, maybe the most important case I have worked on in the 30 years I've been doing this. You will hear more about this in the future. Can you please share this case now?
2: Yes, I'll be happy to share some information on the case, but, uh, I just, when we had to go to break, I was about to say 1965, October of 65 is the year that, uh, the, the Hill story went public as a result of a violation of confidentiality that changed their lives forever. So, uh, anyway, the, the case that I believe is so important uh, occurred on uh, June 27, 2015. Uh, we have been quietly investigating this for a long time. Uh, the two women involved are uh, Pam and Ashley, and they were prominent paranormal researchers in the South. They researched uh, old mansions, old plantations, and also battlefields. Uh, had written uh, about this, they were respected in their field. I was introduced to them for the first time by Stanton Friedman, uh, who was impressed because he had met them and gone to their lecture. And he was impressed by their intelligence, by their scientific approach, and by their knowledge of physics.
0: Yeah, so are we.
2: <laughs> and uh, so um, what happened is... They wanted to do an experiment where they would go to the home of a confirmed abductee or experiencer uh, in order to set up their equipment to do a study. Excuse me, my eye is running today. It's running and burning. <laughs> uh-huh. And so, uh, anyway, so uh, I said that I would uh, help them. And so I got in touch with Chris Bledsoe and asked if it was okay if I introduced them to him, and uh, he said it was fine. And so they set up uh, an experiment at Chris's house. Now, um, Pam has a background uh, in archeology, span anthropology, religion, and she has her master's degree. She spent her career working uh, at uh, a hospital, uh, Uh, in a hospital setting, sort of, at a university in North Carolina. And uh, she was in charge of all the theses on the medical research that was done. That was her job. She's now retired. Um, Ashley is a historian. Um, She uh, always did the historical investigation on any case. So Ashley even did the uh, investigation of... Chris Bledsoe's family and their genealogy and where they came from initially, uh, which was a part of Texas where an alleged craft landed and an entity died uh, quite a long time ago in history. So uh, it was interesting that there was this connection. But they did end up going to Chris's house. They had it all arranged they had anticipated that they would uh, interview him throughout the afternoon, but there were <laughs> the family had other plans, and it became a family affair uh, in the afternoon. But uh, Chris is an individual who enjoys talking. He tends to talk constantly. So they were able to speak to him. They were able to get, receive the information that they were looking for. And then there was a thunderstorm that came in, so they were delayed a little bit, but by 9 o'clock, they were outside, the the storm had left, and they set up their equipment. They had a Bell and Howell movie camera, and they had uh, a ghost box and 35 millimeter cameras and a recording device, all of those sorts of things, and... Um, So the camera was located behind a tree in Chris's yard. This was a tree that uh, had a reputation as being a uh, sort of a burning bush or a smoking tree uh, that was somehow connected to healing. And then uh, there was a hedge uh, 15 feet in front of that tree and they were situated on the other side of that hedge and uh, they were seated at first in chairs and they were just uh, looking into the sky and Chris saw a, a light that was growing brighter and brighter and he said that it might be them and so they were watching this and Pam was asking questions to try to receive information on her ghost box that she was using. And so they were, uh, doing this and the, the next thing they knew, they were all standing up and they were swaying back and forth and feeling nauseated and they, they were no longer holding that equipment and they were wondering what had happened and So they turned around. They were able to find the equipment by this edge. And they picked everything up. They picked up the movie camera. They went into Chris's house. And lo and behold, uh, Chris's wife said to them, Where have you been? I've been looking for you. And do you realize what time it is? Well, they looked at the clock and it was now one o'clock in the morning. They had no idea what had happened, where uh, they didn't go anywhere as far as they remembered. And this was quite traumatizing for Pamela. Uh, Ashley and Pam, who were uh, stepmother and stepdaughter who were working together, uh, kind of had a falling out over this, Ashley remembered more than Pam did, and uh, Pam remembered that uh, seeing people who were dressed in blue uniforms. She remembered a little bit. Um, Ashley remembered a different type of entity, and uh, there, there was just falling out because the two of them didn't know that oftentimes different types of entities worked together on the same craft. Uh I also ended up interviewing Chris Bledsoe and he confirmed all of their statements. Um, Pamela was quite traumatized and I never work with anyone uh in using hypnosis uh unless they have overcome that trauma because I am not a licensed uh, mental health therapist. I'm a certified hypnosis practitioner. I'm very, very careful. I've done a great deal of research. I know that it's easy to confabulate information under hypnosis, but I thought I would give it a try because I use uh, different techniques, and uh, generally it is uh, the type of technique, forensic hypnosis, that law enforcement uh, used to use, sometimes they still do, but it used to be admissible in a court of law. It's not any longer. Uh, so that was what I was using. But I was also using uh, Dolores Cannon's quantum healing hypnosis. So uh, suggestions to ease uh, any pain that they might have, reassurance that it's in the past, it will re- remain in the past, that... Uh, it won't hurt them now, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, what Ashley remembered is that she saw uh, a craft with multicolored lights along the outer edge, and it's over Chris's property, and it's over the back property, uh, whoever that belongs to, and it was bigger than the property. She said um, she thought at this point that she was standing, and she had one hand on Pam's arm and the other on Chris's arm. And she She's just shocked. She can't believe that this is happening. And she's looking at this craft, and underneath the craft she can see somebody looking at her. And... Um, sort of as if they're on the craft, but she said it was no longer a gray color at the bottom, that it was now translucent, um, as if it was actually open, possibly, and uh, there was somebody standing there that had a face that was almost white in appearance, and uh, that uh, it was... Uh, kind of uh, a little bit smaller than than humans, she thought. And, you know, it was just there. And she couldn't make out the features on that face. And then, you know, Pam ended up saying in hypnosis, this was separate hypnosis that I did with them a year apart. Pam was first. Uh, she had a sense that uh, she was encountering four tall beings, taller than her five foot four frame. And that she was just absorbed into this uh, blue light that came out. And uh, that there were two women and two men. And that they were dressed in, the men were dressed in this royal blue color that she remembered. But the women were wearing sort of pastel abalone shell suits. And they were all wearing a chevron shaped symbol. They all, the men looked to be about 40, the women about 30. Um, They ended up being taken somewhere. What Ashley said uh, is that the entities that she was with during this time uh, had kind of their humanoid, but they had Kind of big flappy feet, and they were kind of a, a yellow color or an amber color and and white. She wasn't sure if this was some kind of uniform they were wearing, um, you know, or light beige and white uh, with kind of modeling. They had uh, very long fingers and long arms, and that their eyes were uh, gray with uh, not gray with green with very large eyes that were green without any uh, white showing. It reminded her of insect eyes. And their legs were very, very thin. But the fingers, as I said before, were very long. She didn't notice any thumbs. And so she was escorted. And, and she is not frightened at this point. She's escorted onto the craft. And uh, she is told intuitively... That they are going to take her somewhere, and that the human body has difficulty uh, being transported in this way. That it damages our body because of our we, we have a denser body than they have, um, and so um, they she ended up being put uh, onto this kind of table that she said was the most comfortable place that she had ever been. Uh, To lie down, she was just feeling incredibly comfortable, and then this sort of uh, uh, dome uh, shaped up over the top of her. She could see out of it for a little bit of time, and then she lost consciousness. And so... Um, Pam, I don't know if Pam was transported that way or not, because I did only one hypnosis session with Pam that weekend. I spent hours and hours, maybe 10 hours, interviewing her over and over again. Um, And I did one hypnosis session with her. I did two hypnosis sessions with Ashley a year later. So Pam was uh, terrified, but these entities uh, put some kind of a vest on her that calmed her down. She now felt comfortable, and she uh, was escorted into the inner part of this craft, and she stopped at a beautiful wall that reminded her of a water wall. And it had all shades of blue lighted water, but it wasn't water. It was just flowing across it and down. But it reminded her of like a plasma water wall. And she heard that uh, humming sound that slowed down, and it slowed, and the green went away, and they informed her that they were moving through time and space. The entities told her that there were lots of numbers in that wall. Like a matrix of numbers and they're embedded in the light uh, and they're small and white and moving. That's all she knew about this. She felt a really strong desire to touch the wall, but the entities repeatedly told her not to touch it and Pam turned from the wall and wanted to look around so they walked forward and they and they stepped up. Now when they stepped up, this could have been the place where Ashley was taken to. But in this hypnosis, you really have to have more than one session. And I haven't done two sessions with Pam. Uh, there has been, I believe it was a college professor who worked with her after I did. She's very open to investigation, uh, to having uh, people who are scientifically interested in this and genuinely interested in learning from it uh, to investigate her case. And uh, so, um, in the end, um, they're in this room and uh, Pam wants to look outside. I suspect that she was probably in one of those pods, too, for a while, but didn't say it. Um, and there are sort of, uh, like, windows that uh, you don't open the way we open windows. They weren't even visible. They were like they were part of the craft. And uh, that this is uh, what she saw. They were kind of like smart windows. And she, they finally arrived at this place and, uh, she then looked out the window and they were now on a different surface on a uh, rocky desert land. Um, and neither Pam nor Ashley knew if they were someplace on our planet, a desert without any vegetation that they could see, or if they were maybe someplace like on the moon. So, uh, what Ashley remembered is that she was taken into this very large room that you could see through, and that uh, she mentioned the word soiree, that there were many a- entities there, and that it was almost like visiting family. There were people there that she loved, and uh, yeah. yes, very strange. And beyond that, she could see a city. But um, the uh, it, they did not build the way that we build. They built up vertically, um, and uh, that's you know about it. This interaction that she had uh, uh, in this large see-through room with these entities, um, and Pam saw this rounded surface and a brightly lit dome-shaped building, like Ashley did um, at, with uh, a multicolored connected piping that changed color like neon lights. Uh, she saw a bright light emanating from the building. and the entities explained that they had arrived at an energy waste station. And so uh, they explained to Pam, they gave Pam information. It wasn't like she was having a family reunion in any of the hypnosis that I was able to complete with her. Um, They explained to her that they had lived on Earth hundreds of thousands of years ago, but they had to move on, that their planet could not sustain them, meaning the Earth, and they had the technology at that point where they could leave, but not everybody was able to leave, that many people were left here during an environmental collapse and that they were now probing nearby nebula and assessing Earth. Um, They said that they uh, took material goods from other places but not from our planet. Pam and Ashley were not harmed. Um, They indicated to Pam uh, that that she had been visited by them since she was a little girl. And she thought that that visitation was ghosts. That's why she had developed an interest in the paranormal. But as she looked back on it, she had seen craft, and seen craft with uh, witnesses from time to time, and it was very close. It would have been hovering over the roof of the house, for example. And uh, they said that they are all living beings. They all had higher consciousness that comes from the creator. And uh, then they were returned to earth unharmed. There were no samples taken from their bodies or anything like that. So that's my investigation to this point. Of course, uh COVID-19 interfered with what I wanted to do and what I want to do is to bring Pam and Ashley back together and to uh, hypnotize both of them and suggest to them that they are uh, find find themselves on this craft and see what each of them has to say and I can even turn them off so that the other one can't hear what the other one says if if uh, I desire to do that, I haven't. I don't know what I'm going to do at this point. But okay, I'm hope well,
0: and uh, good luck with that because they're wonderful people. Just for the information of the listeners, uh, Pam and Ashley were on the show on January 24th, show number 880, uh, and I believe Kathy, I, I believe you were co-hosted that show, and uh, that was um, that's available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, etc., and also behindtheparanormal.com. Uh, Archives. Pam herself was on the show, uh, show eight hundred ninety-eight on June sixth, and this we're talking mostly about ghost research, but this case did come up. Mm. If anyone wants to find out more, Kathy, we're about out of time, but tell us about your website, your books, where people can find out more.
2: Yes, uh, well, my website is Kathleen-Marden, M-A-R-D-E-N dot com. All of my books are available for purchase there. You'll receive autographed copies by Stanton Friedman and myself, if he and I collaborated on uh, the book, we collaborated on three books, uh, and then two books that I wrote without him, one with Denise Stoner, and so you'll receive her autograph as well. Uh, There uh, is a list of the conferences that I'll be speaking at this year. I was able to speak at... Roswell recently. It was nice to be with people again <laughs> after yeah. all of this time of isolation. And uh, I'm intending to speak uh, in Phoenix in September and also in Upper Michigan. So you'll find that information there. There are also articles that you can read. And there is uh, a self-guided tour of Betty's and Barney's route on the night of their close encounter and abduction there as well so you can if you're up there you'll know where to go outstanding
0: well we have a few hundred questions we didn't get to and we'll, we'll, get, we'll get back to you in the fall and have you on again but thank you it's okay. always an honor and a pleasure
2: thank you it's a pleasure to be with you as well
0: okay let's get on with our announcements here on July 3rd in an arrangement that came together quite suddenly Ben and I were able to interview the legendary Jacques Vallée along with our friend and science journalist Paul Lepizzi-Harris the subject was of the little-known Trinity UFO crash of 1945, which took place nearly two years before the much better-known Roswell crash. Paula and Dr. Valet recently interviewed two surviving witnesses who actually saw the crash and recovered the from, debris from the craft. The interview is now on the Behind the Paranormal Case Files YouTube channel, uh, and you can see that uh, free of charge. Also, we have a number of fall events coming. As Kathy said, it's great to be back uh, with human beings again. Mm. Uh, Some of them are in person, including the Western Connecticut UFO Conference, and a few that are still being nailed down. We'll let you know more next week
1: indeed and good news on the website front as of yesterday all regular uh recorded broadcasts of behind the paranormal from cbs radio achieve radio and here on won am and fm have been restored in the archives at behind the paranormal.com also fully restored is the return to rendlesham series that we uh did from 2010 to 2011 on cbs radio and all related shows uh still working on restoring other special shows podcasts and interviews but that will be done soon i mean hey you know we're making progress.
0: Yeah. I don't- took five years or whatever it was.
1: exactly
0: anyway uh, our show now has its own app uh, it's bare bones but uh, just as um, most of our past shows are there are accessible through that but we also plan to add features as we go uh, should be in the apple and google online stores soon but there's a link at behind the if you'd like to download the app now
1: indeed and you can check out our books along with those of our guest co-hosts at our show website behind including kathy's yep. indeed And you can check all those out uh, at BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can also find out more about the show or many cases over the years, our public appearances and how to book us, along with some of our 900-plus free recorded shows uh, now restored, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and that is BehindTheParanormal.com.
0: And most of those shows are also available on the major podcast platforms, including YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Paranormal Radio App and Talk Stream Live, and more.
1: And you can visit our website uh, that has a uh, charity page as well uh, with several links to good causes that we have adopted on the show over the years. And uh, now we have added a new charity, which is Hope for Hilldale Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts, run by our good friend Tom Spitaleri. Uh, other charities include USA Cares Veterans uh, Veterans Advocacy as well. Uh, helping Haiti's orphans, uh, youth mentoring connections in uh, Los Angeles, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, along with the Milk Fund here in Northern
0: Rhode Island. And I hasten to add, we know all the people who run these charities. They're, they're run correctly, and the money goes where it should. Indeed. So uh, what's on the menu for next week, Ben?
1: Well, hey, we have uh we we've taken it out of the freezer and popped it into the fridge. Uh next week, uh July 25th, Paul Lupezi Harris uh, will return to the show to revisit the Trinity UFO crash of uh 1945. Uh joining us as a guest co-host will be Steve LaPlume, himself a witness to the Rendlesham Forest UFO incidents uh, who has worked with Paula.
0: And that's quite an interesting case and uh we haven't had uh Steve as a guest co-host in a while and that that'll be very interesting. So uh, we leave you today with a thought from Dr. Jacques Vallée, UFO paranormal legend and pioneer of applying the multiverse theory in this field, which he was doing as early as the 1980s. Uh, no, 50s, actually. Mm. He was an inspiration to me as a young, la- a young lad.
1: I know. I, it, was, it was impressive to see you actually kind of starstruck, as starstruck as you ever get, which was not very, but it was still there. You were kind of in awe. Well, the only
0: other person I'm starstruck, starstruck, Star Trek, starstruck with is Kathy Martin. Mm. um, Here's a quote. Uh, Standard concepts of space and time are not appropriate for understanding telepathy or the moving of objects at a distance or ghosts. Energy and information are one and the same thing. So I'm Paul Eno.
1: And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal.